Okay, welcome back. Uh, today, continuing discussion of Sutta Nipata, moving out of Padana Sutta and uh, the Sutta uh, on exertion or effort uh, associated with Sama Padana or right effort as one of the Eightfold Path. And uh, I want to just before we get into the Sutta for today called Subhasita Sutta. Um, t- uh, translated as well-spoken by Tanasaro or a sutta that is well-spoken. Basically, uh, the write-up is four characteristics of well-spoken speech. So we're talking about samavacca or the uh, <clears throat> element of the Eightfold Path called right speech, samavaka. And I will read the sutta in a bit and then bring in also a page on right speech from puredhamma.net. <clears throat> and before that, I want to just uh, just do maybe 15 minutes or something, pulling together what I went through last time, but a little I felt rushed in the 37 Factors of Enlightenment, which is... Uh, an extension or maybe a, an amplification of uh, right effort from Padana Sutta, I mean, derived or related to it. Pancha Indriya, five Indriya or faculties or powers of Indra, five um, faculties of Indra, <coughs> of Pancha Indriya, when well-established, becoming Panchabala, or five powers, the same listing. From the Wikipedia page on Indriya, uh, these five faculties, uh, I was actually thrown off by the translation of Prajna, or Panya, as understanding. Uh, Gotta understand, (laughs) using the word understanding, that really... um, Monks uh, who are from different Theravadan traditions, as well as traditions including Mahayana and Zen, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, like Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, uh, Tibetan, Vajrayana teachers of the four different schools. Uh, everybody's got a, diff- a somewhat different take on all the teachings and <clears throat> there are some things uh, that that some people will agree with and some that some teachers and scholars will disagree with and um there's no final answer uh meaning uh, i may prefer this approach from this teacher with his or her interpretations and uh, analysis and someone else may not it's all buddhism uh in the end there are uh, countless ways of looking at any one teaching there's a body of uh, understanding that's held in common but there's a whole lot that's divergent like reading through which we'll get to later the page from puredhamma.net from the Sri Lankan who was a physicist and is what I looked through his other stuff recommending a book from some uh, English physicist who's an atheist uh, thinking that that's a good approach to something that that fits with Buddhism 
Well, maybe. Um, but I found some things there that I just uh, couldn't sign on to in his uh, interpretation from his own uh, understanding of some uh, Sri Lankan monks reading or doing commentary on some of the suttas and the terms uh, core Buddha Dhamma teachings interpreted in his own way. Uh, and so there's no single understanding of any of the teachings of Buddha Dhamma, actually, just like anatta. Some people will say it means no self. Some people will say it means, like he said, which I think is right, it's neither self nor non-self. It's um, no soul in the skandhas. So anyway, meaning uh, to say the teaching is no self and Buddha said there's no self, that's not quite correct. But some people will think that's what it is. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, wisdom is a rather lonely matter uh, paraphrasing Ra or direct quote uh, yeah uh, discernment is is the greater work and knowing the spirit of a teaching um, finding the spirit of a, of a teaching through its letter through the word uh, with the fact that even multiple translations of original terms are possible uh, this is a great achievement so in reading spirit, uh, Pancha Indriya, Five Spiritual Faculties, the listing as before in Pali is sada, which means faith or belief that goes to conviction. Virya, energy, persistence, perseverance. Sati, which is mindfulness. And they, somebody translated it as memory. It's absolutely not memory. <laughs> but some people will say recollection is, means sati, meaning to recall to be uh, well collected is a kind of memory. But I don't think so at all. It's very present in the moment. It's certainly not a thought form based practice of awareness. But some people translate sati as memory. Mm. Likewise, samadhi is four, which can be written, translated as stillness or concentration or calm abiding or concentratedness or collectedness even. And then panya or prajna what threw me off was translating that as wisdom or understanding. Um, usually it's understood, panya, as uh, mundane, super mundane, meaning worldly and transcendent levels of wisdom uh, or discernment of principles versus discernment of essence or the penetration of, penetration of characteristics, three marks, knowing the three marks. So uh, there are different ways of looking at that. What I just wanted to go through again is the um, Vishuddhimagga or the Abhidhamma perspective on these five faculties uh, in that they are balancing. <clears throat> in the same way as the seven factors of awakening have a balancing function, where three of them uh, can be used to move out of depressed or deflated mind states. Depressed, deflated, contracted, low energy mind states, sometimes called sloth and torpor. The other three can be used when going through ex uh, exaggerated or inflated or agitated mind states uh, called restlessness and worry. Uh, three of them are 
to move uh, from uh, a, depressed, a depressed condition back to balance. Another three can be used to move down from an overexcited condition back down to balance. In this case, where balance is in the middle. And of those seven factors, um, the central one is mindfulness. Likewise, with the five faculties, five pancha indriya, two of them can be used. Uh, they, they have balancing functions with mindfulness needed all the time. And mindfulness, sati, is ultimately, I mean, I translate it, I would understand it as non-grasping attentiveness, being present in the moment without grasping an aversion, aware of what, ari- of, of what is apparently arising and um, then will uh, pass away when we don't uh, meet it with grasping and aversion, making a big story or repressing it or uh, trying to reject it and push it away. And particularly um, the section where in the Wikipedia page on Indriya called Balancing the Spiritual Faculties, <clears throat> the balancing where mindfulness is needed in all cases. Um, first, uh, one strong in faith and weak in wisdom. So some people have strong faith in teachings or a teacher, but haven't uh, penetrated to some levels of gnosis and therefore may not have a discernment or a wisdom that comes from some direct uh, knowing, but they're strong in faith. Uh, that person, strong in faith and weak in understanding, weak in wisdom or prajna, may have confidence uncritically and grounding, groundlessly, right? So uh, not enough direct experience, uh, but too much faith, or faith without adequate direct uh, knowing. So direct knowing is critical, uh, meanwhile, there is uh, direct knowing and then weak in faith, one strong in prajna or discernment wisdom from direct knowing perhaps, and weak in faith errors on the side of cunning. Now this is not always, it's sometimes. So even Buddha Gosha in Vishuddhimagga, he's got his own take on things. And uh, people sometimes say, uh, it is that when they really should say it may well be sometimes that so being careful is important and and commonly we don't speak carefully all the time we say oh that's the impo- that that that's what counts no that's part of what counts sometimes or that's part of what i think counts but there are other things that count that i didn't say and there are other things that are really critical that i don't even know about and just cuz i said it doesn't mean I'm rejecting what I didn't say. I'm just not focused on that. And maybe I don't even know it. Like that. <laughs> so, to be really careful uh, is important. Uh, and commonly, we all speak carelessly, regularly, actually. So he wrote, strong in prajna, meaning direct knowing. And this is um, like uh, problems that come from attainment. But weak in faith, why do you need faith in Buddha Dhamma when you have direct experience? <clears throat> well, <laughs> this is actually more like strong in wisdom and weak in love. Mm. And so there you've got 
of faith and prajna, or faith and wisdom, as love and wisdom, or receptivity or heart awareness versus clear-seeing knowing. And so one who's strong in clear-seeing knowing, but weak in heart chakra activation. You don't need faith when you have direct gnosis, right? So who needs faith in Buddha Dhamma when you know, you verified for yourself, as Sotapanna may, that the Buddha Dhamma teachings are right, or certain teachings are right. I don't need faith. Um, uh, but I do need heart chakra, <laughs> like that. And so we, so this, this is all, <laughs> to understand deeply, one has to be very nimble and realize that the first part of the sentence may be uh, wonderful and the second part of the sentence may be mistaken. Or it may all be fine, but it's not um, as um, it, it's it's been generalized in a, in a mistaken perspective. So one strong in prajna and weak in love may sometimes err or fall into the ways of cunning that is indeed hard to cure as one sick of a disease caused by medicine. Meaning there's a high-level distortion, like we saw one of the 8th or ninth or 10th armies of Mara, right, uh, uh, coming at Gautama in Padana Sutta. They come at him, or they are distortions and forms of attachment and craving and clinging, three poisons, at high level of the path, um, after attainments, not finished, but some attainments made. That's similar to the condition of strong in wisdom, uh, weak in in love or love or wisdom over love that's a real problem yeah then there's the other dyad of uh, samadhi and energy <laughs> samadhi being translated as concentration energy translated uh, basically comes from the word virya like uh, virile same the, the english word virile from the sanskrit root vir vir that's what they were saying 5000 years ago in uh, the Gangetic Plane, which means like, get with it, soldier. So uh, the counterbalancing of that dyad of virya and samadhi. Uh-huh. Right, so one is strengthening, um, energizing virya. Uh, the other is concentrative that leads to stilling. So there was written here, idleness, meaning sloth and torpor, overpowers one strong in concentration, meaning samadhi, and weak in energy. And that's like, one can get into a jhana when one's really tired, but it's actually harder to have insight when one's really tired in meditation. So, since concentration favors idleness, right, so samadhi uh, can lead to, uh, it's called tree stump samadhi in the Japanese tradition. Tree stump samadhi, probably comes from China. Samadhi, um, where the mind has become kind of dull. This is a kind of torpor, torporous samadhi. So <clears throat> that can be when one is strong in samadhi, or concentration, and weak in alertness. Then there's agitation, there's the other side. Agitation overpowers one strong in energy, or too much virya goes to agitation, while that one is weak in concentration. So energy favors agitation, right? So too much energy 
and one is in that restlessness and worry condition that needs more samadhi and stillness like in the seven factors to come back to balance. So in many ways the five faculties of five indriya is a condensation of the seven enlightenment factors where um, two pertain to um, coming uh, down from an exaggerated condition or from an uh, excessive state and two are refer, refer to going up from a depressed or contracted or low energy state while mindfulness is always necessary. So it goes on. But concentration coupled with energy cannot lapse into idleness, meaning samadhi, while there's bright alertness going on. We're not sleeping. And then energy coupled with concentration cannot lapse into agitation, meaning the person <clears throat> has that virya persistence going on and on and on, but they're not um, they're not undisciplined. <laughs> they're they're centered in strong energy. There's a strong energy condition uh, and a, a commitment or persistence to keep working, whatever it is in meditation or mindfulness in daily life or uh, continuing to learn or listen even um, while there's still a, there's a concentratedness there's a concentration to that strong energy condition that won't fall into agitation so then it says so these two should be balanced and absorption or jhana comes with the balancing of the two energy and samadhi right and so that's also interesting one working on concentration or samadhi needs strong faith. That's a different pairing. Since with such faith and confidence one reaches absorption or jhana. So anyway, and then there's the balancing of concentration understanding, which is really samadhi and prajna. And that's what leads to insight. So to get into jhana, one certainly needs samadhi uh, or concentration or um, the ability to become one-pointed through meditation, and a faith that I can let go and all will be well, among other forms of faith. And then two, concentration or samadhi and prajna leading to insight. One working on concentration or samadhi needs strong unification, which is just to say that's what happens, one-pointedness in samadhi. So that's how, since that's how he reaches absorption or jhana, then one working on insight or vipassana, right? Trying a penetration of the three marks, which is really seeing the emptiness of particularly mental phenomena, right? Mindfulness of mind, actually. And mindfulness um, of the three characteristics in um, daily life. This is also, <laughs> takes a, would, is a long discussion. So one working on insight or vipassana needs strong understanding, meaning strong prajna, meaning alertness, and also discerning to see clearly, carefully, a kind of careful-mindedness uh, and alert. Since that how he, that's how he reaches penetration of characteristics, meaning the three marks, which is the heart. Seeing that is the heart of insight. And it seems kind of simple, but it isn't. It seem, Or it seems kind of straightforward, okay, get to a high state and then see the three marks. Um, one needs, one must be very concentrated, very still, and very alert and bright, uh, meaning uh, energy 
stabilized, strong energy stabilized, quiet mind, concentrated, <clears throat> um, beyond fear, thus with more faith, uh, to be able to uh, naturally gain insight or penetrate characteristics or see what is in the moment as it is uh, and then go beyond that. But with the balancing of two, he reaches absorption as well. So that's insight and jhana. And finally, <clears throat> Buddha Gosha said, strong mindfulness, sati, is needed in all instances, right? Same thing with the seven uh, bodhjanga, seven factors of enlightenment. For mindfulness protects the mind lapsing into agitation, meaning that the mindfulness, by mindfulness we realize, oh, okay, this, I'm in an agitated condition, which can also be doubt and worry. Then, um, by faith, energy, and understanding, one can get out, one can... Uh, <clears throat> this was written very strangely. For mindfulness protects the mind lapsing into agitation through faith, energy, and prajna, meaning <laughs> uh, <clears throat> when a person has uh, faith and persistence and prajna or uh, wisdom discerning to see clearly in the moment, one may fall into agitation. However, if there's samadhi or concentrated or one-pointed mind, disciplined mind, right, that knows, okay, uh, I'm agitated, one will get out of it. <clears throat> and so, versus the mindfulness that also could help us understand when we're falling into idleness through concentration, which favors idleness. So, you've got to be uh, kind of nimble just to unpack some of these sentences. So, again, <clears throat> uh, one may fall into a contracted state or mind may uh, generate depressed or devitalized or contracted states or mind may fall into agitated, um, uh, excessive, <laughs> uh, unstable states. And mindfulness would pick that up in all in both cases. Then mindfulness would basically be able to find the counterbalancing. And it's just like Ross said: when you find impatience, find the corresponding patience. It's a very simple way of saying: find the counterbalancing uh, qualities uh, of mind, where the mind contains all things. Uh, the counterbalancing quality, and when one. Um, one, one eventually doesn't have to think about these words. Uh, as far as I know, from as far as whatever I, however well I can do this myself, which is as well as anybody, as uh, any teacher, teach, the, the value of anyone's teaching is basically uh, the measure of how well they've learned by their own personal application of teaching. They've we, each person applies teaching to some degree on him or herself, on ourselves. The, the degree to which we have uh, successfully applied true teachings to our own process is the value of our teaching for others, I'd say. And so, 
the one who's applied fine teachings finely to him or herself is the one whose teaching is most uh, refined and available for our our application, our self-application. And so my sense is, for as, best, as well as I can do this myself, which I don't know, only, a, only somebody beyond me could, only someone beyond us can evaluate where we are, you know. And anybody who thinks that they are hot shit is probably foolish. So obviously everybody should know that. So superiority doesn't go until the end of the path or conceit, tanhamana, the, the craving of conceit or the conceitedness craving doesn't go till the end, uh, till the eighth fetter, yeah. But um, in the end, um, only those beyond us can evaluate us clearly, I think. But in my own experience here, um, mindfulness clearly can pick up when we're agitated or when we're a bit collapsed, either high or low energy or, or mind states. Then... Just the recognition of that helps bring back to balance. Uh, so long as one can move out of that to a, quiet, a more quiet mind and not continue the narrative that is associated with those um, that, that kind of bi- either bipolar condition, either of the two conditions that are bipolar, right? Manic, excessive, or depressed, uh, collapsed, uh, the mental narrative that may be in play at the moment needs to be halted for sure. Uh, and even if there's not much mental narrative, um, one needs to pull out of the state. But mindfulness is itself a freedom from states, you see. And so just being able to be mindful, oh, this mind is in an excessive or in a contracted state, either of the poles of that bipolarity or that polarity um, is itself the beginning of um, a pulling the plug is, is the beginning to pull the plug and um, defuel the continuance of either of those um, unbalanced states uh, then naturally one would either rouse oneself or uh, center recenter oneself and that um, either brings us back up or brings us back down to balance, back to the mid to the midline position, from the deficient or the excessive. Anyway, I wanted to just throw that in there for your viewing pleasure in the first 30, 30 minutes here. <laughs> Time flies. So now, <laughs> Subasita for today sounds like somebody I know. Subasita. Sutta, well-spoken, translated from Pali by Tanasaro Bhikkhu Samutta. It's actually Sutta Nipata 3.3. Thus have I heard, or I have heard, that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying in Savati at Jetta's Grove, Anatta Pindika's monastery. There he addressed the monks. Monks! Yes, Lord, Bhante, the monks replied. The Blessed One said, Monks! speech endowed with four characteristics is well spoken not poorly spoken faultless and not to be faulted by the wise which four there is the case where a monk says only what is well spoken it's interesting typo here 
says only what is well spoken, not what is poorly spoken. Only what is just, not what is unjust. Only what is endearing, not what is unendearing. Only what is true, not what is false. And so the four are well spoken, just, endearing, and true. Speech endowed with these four characteristics is well spoken, not poorly spoken, faultless, and not to be faulted by the wise. This is what the Blessed One said. Having said this, the well gone, the one well gone, the teacher, said further, the calm, meaning before we had the wise, now we're talking about the calm, those who are <laughs> uh, highly spiritualized in mind. The calm say, what is well spoken is best. Second, that one should say what is just, not unjust. Third, what's endearing, not unendearing. Fourth, what is true, not false. Then, Venerable Vangisa, this is the uh, foremost disciple uh, who makes poems. Venerable Vangisa, rising from his seat, he says, it's my turn, arranging his robe over one shoulder, faced the Blessed One with his hands palm to palm in front of his heart and said, An inspiration has come to me, Blessed One. An inspiration has come to me, one well gone. And Gautama, who <laughs> has uh, gotten familiar with this kind of situation, says, Let the inspiration come to you, Vangisa. This is like, uh, you could do this in a, in a Southern Baptist church, perhaps. Let the inspiration come to you, Vangisa, the Blessed One said. Then Venerable Vangisa praised the Blessed One to his face with these attractive verses. Speak only the speech that neither torments self nor does harm to others. That speech is truly well spoken. Speak only endearing speech, speech that is welcomed. Speech when it brings no evil to others is pleasant. Truth, indeed, is deathless speech. This is an ancient principle. The goal and the Dhamma, so say the calm, are firmly established on truth. The speech the awakened one speaks for attaining unbinding rest, for making an end to the mass of stress, that is the speech unexcelled. So we have a couple of different ways of uh, uh, expositing the nature of uh, Samavaka or right speech. Uh, which would be praised by the wise and the calm and faultless. So well-spoken, just, endearing, and true. And so the common understanding of right speech, or one of Panchashila, five sila, uh, is don't lie, is against lying. And that's not the height of, not, not the only form of wrong speech. Uh, and um, the Sri Lankan in PureDhamma.net explains that, and we'll get into that in a moment, that um, there are other characteristics of right speech, just as we see here. And speech that is true, not false, is only one of them. Uh, what's true, not false, uh, supports, as I've said, the alignment of the conscious mind with the subconscious the alignment of mind with spirit, the alignment with the individual, with the macrocosm. <clears throat> because truth is a statement, 
um, in thought form, in illusory conceptual thought form of relative truth, relative level of, of phenomena or phenomenological level, um, that um, supports continued evolution, that that answers questions rightly and leads to long-term welfare and benefit. That's part of why we call it true and not false. And that's part of why it's right and not wrong speech. Because what is called true is in naturally associated with the good and the beautiful, right? The good and the true and the beautiful, green, blue, indigo, good, green, good, good is green. And <laughs> true is blue, true blue, mm-hmm, there you go. Fifth ray, true blue. And then beautiful indigo, uh, sixth ray. Uh, when it's true, it partakes of the good and the beautiful as well. And uh, truth partakes of love and is um, in harmony with, with the beauty, with, um, uh, with what, we could be, what could be called spiritual beauty. Uh, at least that's how I'd see it the physical and the metaphysical being inseparable, what is called truth in many ways is a reflection into the physical of the metaphysical, an accurate reflection from the metaphysical into the physical is one definition of truth, <laughs> of the very word truth. And so it's supportive of long-term welfare and benefit. It's called true because indeed uh, it supports God. It supports the original desire that entity seek and become one. Mm. Then, likewise, it's just, it's fair. Now, that doesn't really honestly mean that it should always be endearing, um, because uh, some people need to be blasted. <laughs> I mean, really, honestly, all sorts of great teachers now and then blast someone verbally. They don't say, you fuckhead, I hate you, you're shitty. They don't talk so stupid like that. They would say something that's harsh, uh, but it's not malicious, right? It's actually true. It's just. It's not endearing. It's well-timed. The timing is right, presumably. I mean, it's beyond my level, but I presume the timing is right, and that it's just, and that it's true. Uh, and it is deserved for somebody who's an active troublemaker and needs the truth of being blasted. Now, I don't know what that means, but um, there are ways of doing it, and I think we can imagine. Sometimes, I mean, the challenge um, in speaking what's endearing or what's easy, well-received, well is when we have anger, and the anger associates with desire, right? So when, what, what, is, what is the basis of wrong speech? Well, the, wrong, the forms of wrong speech are the opposites of right speech, all right? So, so-called wrong speech is speech that is false, deceptive, uh, speech that is also divisive, speech that is unendearing or harsh and hard to hear. It's painful just to listen, like, cacophonous, and then unjust, unfair. It, it, you know, you don't blast... Uh, someone who doesn't deserve it, uh, or harsh speech is um, perhaps just for the harsh-minded, but very unjust for the for the sweetly, for the sweet-minded. Don't don't 
harsh speech normally is wrong speech. Uh, for the harsh-minded, uh, harsh speech might be just speech, mm. therefore right speech. But, you know, you can disagree with me if you're a hardcore Buddhist and you have a different view. But I've seen a lot of t teachers who are real blast harsh-minded troublemakers periodically. I mean, maybe once every few months or every few years. But it happens. Nityananda did. Gautama did. He said, you fool. You stupid fool. To some monk. All sorts of teachers blast uh, troublemaking students. Periodically. It doesn't happen often. But it happens. That's harsh speech that's just. Um, but in general, um, harsh speech is unjust. And so wrong speech includes harsh speech, and then malicious speech was intending to hurt. Even harsh speech is not intending to hurt. And uh, a great teacher who blasts uh, a troublemaker um, by harsh speech, uh, I believe wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't consider that malicious. Now there are some <laughs> fake teachers, there are more than a few, um, who... Uh, under the guise of justly delivered harsh speech to a troublemaker, uh, fall into malicious speech. Uh, and they themselves have all sorts of distortions or inadequate love, right? Inadequate heart chakra matching their wisdom, right? Their, their uh, blue, six, blue, fifth ray, sixth ray are okay, but the green ray is deficient. So uh, there is just harsh speech uh, that a great teacher may deliver, there is unjust, malicious speech under the guise of uh, harsh correction that a fake teacher will demonstrate. One should know. And so, wrong speech, therefore, is what's not well-spoken and also it means wrong timing. And unjust, unfair. It's not fair. And so if somebody says, you're always doing that because you want to hurt me. <laughs> Commonly, people make trouble for each other with their mouth. Yeshua said, so, so, it say, so it seems somewhere. Yeshua said, it's not what a man puts in his mouth that causes sin, but what comes out. So the vegans, um, angry vegans, may not know that if they're angry. Um, that eating flesh doesn't cause sin. Um, but speaking wrongly or um, poor timing, unfair, unjust, harsh, malicious, unendearing, and false, and divisive, and then frivolous is the other one. Those are forms of wrong speech, no matter what you eat. We should know that, obviously. Uh, so, uh, right speech is praised by the calm and the wise. Right speech... Uh, as Vangisa said, with these attractive verses, said, um, right speech doesn't torment self nor harm others. There are some people, right, we have a close friend, she said, we're all bozos on the bus. I'm not a bozo on the bus and neither is she. I wouldn't say I'm a bozo on the bus. So I don't like that. That's harsh, that's harsh speech against the self. Undeserved. And that's not appropriate. And that uh, shows some kind of perhaps imprinted pain unhealed and um, damaged sense of self. Uh, over self-critical and self-blaming. So don't, don't, don't 
beat yourself up with your own, don't beat yourself up with your speech, right? There's harsh and malicious speech to other. There's harsh and malicious speech to self in thought and verbalized. Um, like yourself or appreciate yourself and acknowledge uh, when you have guilt and shame and regret and remorse. Okay, yeah, I made a mistake. I made trouble. But uh, don't beat yourself up in thought or speech. That's the speech that torments self. And so speak only the speech that neither torments self nor does harm to others. That's what well-spoken means. Uh, it also is about timing. And we'll see when we get into net about that. Only speak endearing speech that's welcomed. But again, um, there is some harsh, there is some, there are hard truths. There are truths that people feel hard to hear. And commonly they ought to be delivered, actually. And so that's not welcomed. And so one should, you know, <laughs> do whatever you want. You want to follow these teachings to the strict letter and uh, not interpret them your own way, then go right ahead. That's still interpreting them your own way. Mm. So, but I, it seems to me, yeah, there will be some speech that's not welcomed. You see, again, everybody's got their own view, you know? He's Venerable Vangisa, maybe he's an Arahan. You think he understands everything better than you? Well, maybe there's something you understand better than him. Hmm. There's maybe a translation problem. <laughs> hmm. Maybe there's he was speaking to certain people, or he this was he was putting it in uh, poetic rhyme and, and synt syntax, and uh, it was a poetic technique that he wanted to put certain meter and param param you know the the parameters of of uh, crafting a, a, a lines of poetry here. He couldn't say certain things. Yeah, true. Meanwhile. There is a value to speech that's not welcome sometimes. If it's true, and if it's helpful or seeking to be helpful, that's called just. It's fair. <clears throat> it's not untrue. It is also well-timed. It may well be well-timed, but not welcome to be heard. That's called, you know, bitter medicine. Yeah. Speech when it brings no evil to others is pleasant. Yeah, sure, maybe. But there's also, there, there's more involved because there's trivial speech like, hey, hey Joe, how's the football team? Um, let's talk about the quarterback and the MVP picks for, uh, you know, on the television last night. That's not bringing e all others evil, but it's trivial or frivolous or doesn't conduce to development. And so it brought no evil. It's pleasant enough, I guess, but it's actually empty. So, uh, ultimately, right speech needs to combine many of these factors, meaning um, not only true and just and well-spoken or delivered at the right time and helpful, but also of value, <clears throat> of some importance. That's called helpful, not just pleasant. Then truth as a deathless speech. Yeah, truth is the path to the deathless. <clears throat> and so the goal and the Dhamma, um, reality, the goal of Buddha, Buddhist practice and right view, right? So here we're learning the right view of right speech, right? The useful, accurate teachings on right speech 
developing our view or refining our right view of right speech. Um, this is a portion of Buddha Dhamma and uh, established on truth. Likewise, the goal of this right view, ultimately moving from Shila to Samadhi and Prajna, right? To insight and greater release and freedom. All that's uh, at best established on truth, as it should be. And then Gautama's speech itself for attaining unbinding rest, final rest, right? The end of all craving and agitation, the the end of ninth fetter restlessness. That's this is you know the path. This can be called metaphysically or cosmologically the path of return from source ba- from source back to source, from infinity <clears throat> that is one. Um, f- from infinity that is one into multiplicity, time and space, from innocence to experience, back to higher innocence, back to source, back from the many to the one, to the, to the uh, uncountable, the deathless. From the deathless to death and back to the deathless. Right? The path of evolution back to source, path of return, is also a path of release. And so, uh, release of the extraneous and the unnecessary and the harmful. Um, that releasing is a returning home. And um, that's seeking unbinding, right? So from voluntary binding in samsara, reincarnation, in 31 planes, in seven dimensions, through the long experiences of self-consciousness, out of uh, subjectivity, beyond any conceit and um, false identity, beyond memory and identity, out of six density to seven, that's an unbinding, and that's a real rest. That's making an end to the mass of dukkha, mass of dukkha, mass of stress. And that <laughs> speech that supports that is unexcelled, yes. Now, <clears throat> we will move right along. Um, looking at the page on puredhamma.net, he has much to say about everything and uh, talks about right speech, how to avoid accumulating kamma, and uh, makes some very interesting points about right speech. They are actually ten points. Um, even though he's a physicist, uh, he has a good understanding of dhamma. Even though there are certain things I don't like, that's fine. Certain things that I say, I'm sure he doesn't like too. So, number one, the fourth precept of the five precepts um, is right speech, um, meaning don't lie commonly. And he writes, most people literally take it to mean not lying. Right. But, he goes on, but since we know that intention, chetana, right, is at the root of deciding whether an action is right or wrong, meaning com- karmic determination is associated with intention. We always need to be careful about what we intend to achieve by what we say, and actually, it's not just conscious intention, it's subconscious intention too, which he didn't catch. He writes, the correct meaning of lying is not to utter speech with bad intentions, to hurt others or deceive others. So, the correct meaning of lying is not to have bad intentions. This a little stretched, I'd say, but lying as false speech. What's false? Bad intentions are false? Mm, maybe. Um, bad. What are bad intentions? 
which may be conscious, which are intentions at the conscious level or consciously recognized intentions and subconsciously in subconsciously in play or subconsciously driven intentions as well meaning it's very important to look inside the path to hell right <laughs> the road to hell paved with good intentions in the conscious mind what about the subconscious well it ain't going to hell because of good uh, of good intentions in the conscious mind it's going to hell because of bad intentions in the subconscious or some confusion in the subconscious or distortions in the deep mind that the person doesn't consciously know. The path to road to hell paved with good intentions. Good intentions consciously. Bad or confused or distorted intentions in the deeper levels of mind unrecognized. Now he's he, he does a lot of stretching. Um, the correct he, he's good at stretching. The correct meaning meanwhile I like, you know, Okay, I have criticism of him. Is that terrible? You know, some people may think so. Some people may not. <clears throat> so, um, you know, one seekers of gold must dig up a lot of dirt. Absolutely, Heraclitus is right. So he says the correct meaning of lying, which is reaches um, where the fourth precept of the five, meaning don't lie as punch, one of the Panchashila, five Shila. Um, yes, it's called don't lie or against lying or against uh, falsehood, deliberate falsehood. Um, I don't know, you can say that uh, deliberately uh, lying, it, it, clearly there's bad intentions. I think it's basically just that Panchashila doesn't include all aspects of right speech. That's all. <laughs> this, the primary aspect of right speech is truthful speech, which is just as well. Um, I wouldn't stretch it and say lying or, or lie, right, don't lie or against lying means don't have bad intentions. But I'd say that Panchashila, fourth precept of the five against lying and false speech, does include, does not include all aspects of right speech. Okay. Uh, but uh, the, the harmful intentions is certainly at the root of wrong speech, for sure. And that's associated with hurting and deceiving others. And that ultimately comes out of the three poisons, right? From craving and clinging, right? Tanna and upadana. One goes into um, the, the uh, constellations, <laughs> the many manifestations of the three poisons, grasping, aversion, ignorance, or desire, uh, anger, harsh mind, and, and dull mind, or foggy mind, or, or confusion, ignorance. Uh, three poisons. Uh, we hurt others maybe because we're hurt and we're lashing out. That's anger coming from desire. We deceive others because we want to get something or we want to avoid something. I want to get this thing, <laughs> whatever, and I don't want something else that's true to be recognized. And so generally, you always, you'll see that wrong speech comes out of some mixture of the three poisons. And so that's why I've said uh, it's very hard to highly develop morality or sila or harmlessness when we have strong, when we have many strong desires. That's all. Because ultimately, ultimately people are angry um, and fall into harsh speech and malicious speech, basically coming out of desire. Uh, 
it's a desire to get back at you because I want you. I wanted something was that was disappointed. I'm angry. You hurt me. How did you hurt me? Well, that's a common way of thinking of it. You didn't give me what I want. You broke a promise. I have a desire. Nothing wrong with desire, but <laughs> we have lots of desires. I have a desire that you don't break promises, but you did. I have a desire that you give me something you said you would, but you didn't. I have a desire that you speak nice to me, but you didn't. I have a desire that you're loyal and faithful and have fidelity to me, but you weren't. Or whatever. I have a desire that you will be on my side, not on his side, but you weren't. So, uh, desire, frustrated, or lost, uh, gain lost, uh, something we seek that we can't get, something we have that we're that is taken from us or we lose. Desire then may lead to aversion. That leads to harsh speech and malicious speech. And then the desire to hurt. Meanwhile, that's different than um, just helpful intention, knowing the mind of other who um, is a troublemaker that needs to be blasted. Different. Number two, if one does, he writes, if one does a wrong deed, one may be able to deny it in a statement worded in such a way as to conform to legality. Uh, like Mr. Bill, Mr. Bill C. said, uh, it all depends on the meaning of the word is or something, or it, it, what, what is, is. Some kind of clever lawyer talk to get out of his... Uh, scandal. So yeah, there's uh, clever lawyerly talk to conform legally um, and uh, lie, <laughs> basically. One does a wrong deed. One does something one doesn't want to honestly admit. Whatever. It could be anything. One does something one does not want to admit. May One may cleverly word their response. I mean, I'm sure we've done that. It's called a white lie, commonly. Or a um, well, I'm not always totally honest, you know. <laughs> Meaning, well, sometimes I deliberately lie. Some people say, instead of saying, sometimes I deliberately lie to cover my ass because I don't want to get blamed. And I don't want, to get, I, I don't want you to be upset or I don't want to be blamed. Because sometimes, and so sometimes I deliberately lie. It sounds not as nice as, well, I'm not totally honest all the time, you know. So it's similar to that this sort of uh, clever strategic communication to um, basically disavow responsibility for something we don't want to admit. Then he goes on, yet it is registered as false speech in one's own mind, subconsciously, and thus one is not able to escape the comic consequences, which may not be very, hard, very terrible, but there is some. And again, that's back to um, comma being intention. The intention is to avoid... Uh, admittance, admitting um, true or just responsibility. Um, an honest admission of responsibility is avoided, is rejected, while that should be. Um, it, it ought to be in some sense of moral, true moral uh, perspective would admit responsibility for that activity that we did or we are responsible, you know, we are associated with and that's the avoidance of responsibility he brings in a quote from venerable Ayakema I believe was a European woman German wrote a book visible here and now 
nicely summarized what is right, what right speech is not. <clears throat> this may be helpful for some people. Um, it was a little tangled for me. If you, and she said, if you know something that is not helpful and is untrue, then do not say it. If you know something that might be helpful, but it is untrue, do not say it. If you know something that is not helpful and is true, do not speak about it. If you know something that is helpful and is true, then find the right time to say it. So you see there's helpful, true, and well-timed or well-spoken. Well-spoken can be pleasing to hear, can also be well-timed. So helpful means it's just and fair and um, intending to benefit, help the other benefit themselves, help, you know, I don't want to bring down, I want to help, help support evolution. <laughs> I, I, I want the best for you and me. That's helpful. Uh, and if it's, but if we know it's not helpful, uh, the, and it is, you know, so there's not helpful and untrue, there's not helpful and true. If it's not helpful, and not true, don't say it. Uh, again, <laughs> you know, uh, is she the last word? Does she have the final word on, on interpretation of, of uh, Samavacha? No. Do I? No. Do you? No. Does anyone? No. I mean, Gautama did, I guess. But even then, if it's not helpful, if it's helpful and untrue, right? What if it's it might be helpful, but is untrue. Do not say it. Well, if somebody would be, if somebody would be um, inspired, or they might, you know, you have a friend who has low self-esteem. He, she is always self-critical, and he, she is wearing a nice piece of clothing, or a piece of clothing, or they did their hair, or they have a certain bright cheer to their face. Um, but you can still see they're sad <laughs> or they're confused or they're wounded or something, something. And you say, you look nice today. It certainly might be helpful. How true is it? It's somewhat true. It's not the whole story. You can see they're still unwell in mind. It doesn't mean that they're healed. Uh, so you say, you look nice today. Uh, it, it's a little thing. It might be helpful. How true is it? Eh, it's somewhat true. Um, why not say it? Uh, if it's... Certainly, whatever is helpful <laughs> is helpful or has some benefit to be spoken, even if it's not totally true, I'd say. Uh, she said it might be helpful but untrue. Do not say it. So this is... She's uh, German. So... Uh, take your own thing. Helpful and true, then find the right time to say it. This is the key that um, timing is important too. And so um, it's valuable to hold your tongue until you're sure. Same thing like a counselor or listening to a friend and talking. Uh, try not to interrupt them. <laughs> this is a good practice, friends. Try not to interrupt the people who are talking to you. Try to listen. Try to let them finish what they're saying before you speak. It's a great training, by the way. And that's also well-spoken at the right time. The right time not interrupting them midstream. Meanwhile, if they go yakking on and on for five minutes in a monologue, in some cases it might be a very good thing to interrupt them because um, they're selfish. 
<laughs> and they don't give a shit about your feeling. And um, maybe they should. Maybe it's time to learn a little bit. You, can't, you, you need to understand there's somebody here, not you. You're not the only one here in the room while you keep talking. Sometimes that's useful. And that might be a little harsh. Mm, and they may not welcome it. Mm. So mm, there are stages of development where you really ought to trust yourself a little more than some other people teaching Buddhism who perhaps don't trust themselves as much, or they do, or they're a little conflicted. Mm. Number four, if you carefully examine the four above four statements, they say to prevent lying, gossiping, hate, or vain speech. These are four ways one can accumulate immoral kama with speech. Immoral kama. It just means bad kama. It just means um, you made trouble, and so some <laughs> you're due to get some trouble because you made some trouble. And these are, these are uh, classical forms of wrong speech. Lying, which is not true. Meaning lying is speaking what is untrue. Gossiping is divisive speech. And any kind of speech that... Uh, there was a long phrase, we, section we talked about this long, long ago. Uh, bringing over there what he's heard here. Uh, bringing uh, here what he's heard over there. This kind of thing. Divisive speech. Um, very big in politics and uh, very harmful, actually. It's a one one reason when you see it. some people with uh, chiclets teeth, their teeth are all jiggly-jaggly, jiggly, uh, jiggy-jaggy, I don't know what to say. But when you see somebody and their teeth are very poorly aligned in their mouth and all messed up, that commonly is a, is a person who's done wrong speech in past lives. And they come in with a uh, chiclets teeth uh, all misaligned and uh, arranged in a disorderly way because their mouth has been disorderly in past lives hate or vain speech hate is malicious speech um, that's like I want to hurt you with my mouth that also leads to mouth problems symptomatically vain speech is arrogance and also a form of frivolous speech these are four ways one can accumulate Make, make trouble <laughs> with your mouth. Don't make trouble with your mouth. He goes on, let us look at some of the examples from Tapitaka on how the Buddha can himself handle some situations. And this is all very good stuff, I must say. <clears throat> We've broken our eye. Number five, when Buddha was at Jetawana Jet, Ramaya, Jetawana Ramaya, for many years, he always likes the complicated words, there lived a butcher, Kunda, Tunda, the pig killer. His name Tunda means pig killer, maybe, right next door. Some bhikkhus suggested to the Buddha that he should preach the Dhamma to Tunda, get him to understand the consequences of his actions. But the Buddha explained that if he was to go there and try to do that, Tunda would only generate hateful thoughts in, in his own mind about the Buddha. Thus, Tunda would commit an even worse kama, so we need to be tactful about our speech. So... Um, the, it was the wrong time for Gautama to uh, do any teaching uh, about the pig, to the pig killer because he had a lot of anger in his mind. And some of the people who were involved in animal slaughter uh, livelihood are that way. Not all, but some. And um, the right time may mean not this lifetime. <laughs> may mean never again. Meaning some things that we could say to some people that might be helpful and true are not helpful <laughs> for them because the time is wrong. And so it's not helpful if the time is wrong. Mm. So well-spoken 
also means at the right time. And at the right time really is a question, goes right to the heart of helpful. Just because it's true doesn't mean it's helpful. Uh, just because it's well-spoken or easy to hear doesn't mean it's helpful. Just because it's true doesn't mean it's helpful, even if it is um, pleasant. Uh, if the time is off, meaning the person's not receptive, then it probably is not helpful, and therefore probably shouldn't be spoken. Ross said, service is effective to the degree it is requested. If the person's mind is not requesting, is not receptive, then um, it should one should hold one's hold one's tongue or be silent. Number six. On the other hand, Buddha walked a long distance to get to Angulimala just before he was to kill his own mother. Story is that Angulimala, Angulimala was a highway robber, but he actually had a guru who suggested all that. Had killed almost a thousand people, but that was on the prompting of his teacher. What? So it's okay. Who was trying to get Angulimala into trouble that morning? The Buddha saw what was about to happen. That's considered a super bad comic deed to kill your one of your parents. The Buddha saw what was about to happen, knew that he would be able to convince Angulimala of the bad consequences of his actions, meaning he knew that service could be effective because Angulimala was receptive. And he became an arahant in a few weeks, even though he had killed a thousand people. Hmm. That's an interesting matter on karma. Seven... In the case of Vachagota, we talked about this before, asking the Buddha about whether there's a self or a no-self, Buddha just remains silent. And so that's also a matter of uh, wrong timing um, being unhelpful, or it would have been unhelpful to speak because uh, the person wasn't receptive. So that's called um, being in silence because there's no way with the person's mind as is now that it could be well-spoken or well-received or helpful. We could well, you can well speak it, but it won't be well-received. Therefore, it's not really helpful. Uh, like Chunda would be more angry. Um, Angulimala was ready. Vachagota was not. The story is after Vachagota left, uh, Ananda asked him why, but didn't explain the concept. And here he puts in his own view, which I think is accurate. It's not correct to say there is no soul or there is a soul because there's only an ever-changing life stream, meaning what is this I that appears to continue lifetime to lifetime in multiple bodies? That's, you know, the life stream or what uh, the false identity of, of a beingness. It's a, a energy consciousness stream. So it's not correct to say there's no soul. It's not correct to say there is a soul. That's what anatta means, he says. And I think that's absolutely correct and very deep insight. Buddha told Ananda that he didn't think Vachagota was mentally capable at that time to understand the concept, and he didn't want to confuse him. So it's not helpful when the person's not receptive, and that means it's not the right time, and that means one shouldn't say. Then, eight, Buddha was endowed with that capability to see other people's mental status. He writes, we do not have that capability, so we need to use our own judgment well, <laughs> our own judgment may include the fact that some of us do indeed have some degree of the capability to see other people's mental status. Yeah. So, it's considered a, a, it's considered a city to know the mind of others. Actually, I was surprised at that. Meaning, like flying through the air, uh, or uh, disappearing. Uh, knowing the mind of others is considered a magical power or a city and ability. 
Well, a lot of spiritually minded people have some degree of psychic sensitivity or astral or non-physical sensitivity to mind states and and uh, comic conditions um, of others. So to say we do not have that capability um, as a blanket statement is a little bit mistaken. We don't have Gautama's perfection for sure. Um, meanwhile, we may have some. And using our own judgment actually means our own sense from whatever degree we are indeed able to know the mind of others um, to determine uh, are they receptive and a lot of people also teach you know I mean I see this uh, commonly people who learn something end up yakking yakking somebody's ear off telling them things that the person doesn't want to hear I mean it's nice to teach but it's uh, not cool to be um, teaching um, when people are not interested. You really shouldn't bother people. So um, we need to use our own judgment. We need to be careful not to um, be self-centered and, and be a narcissistic speaker of truth. That's not helpful. Then nine, lying to another human being with bad intentions. Again, conscious and unconscious may have even worse consequences, depending on the particular case, than killing a being of a lower realm like an ant or a cockroach. In some cases, lying may lead to physical harm or even death for others, of course. You know, there are lies that send people to the death, to the, to the electric chair. Um, it depends on the karmic consequences for the individual who's lying have something to do with the future consequences uh, uh, for the person who's lied, you know, uh, future consequences associated with our lying, future consequences uh, particularly for other people of our lying. Uh, he goes on, he's saying, the comic effects of such offenses depend on the status of the being in question and the consequences of the particular action, right? For example, killing an arahan or killing one or one's own parents is much worse crime than killing a normal human. Killing any human is worse than killing any animal. I think that's accurate. In terms of lying, um, he gives the example um, in Nazi Germany. Germans, some Germans lied to the Nazis, said they were not hiding Jews in their houses. Of, of course, the intention was to save lives, thus it was the right thing to do. They acquired good karma for protecting lives, I would think so. So that's... Uh, lying uh, for the sake of uh, helping and there yeah the consequences were that some people stayed alive longer and um, that was good and that is indeed good karma or merit and so in that case lying means uh, a good if the consequences are beneficial truly beneficial for others uh, without fooling yourself <laughs> then that lying would be considered a right action or right speech. So again, it's about intention and consequences. And different levels of intention are in play. So one has to be very careful about that and um, be real honest with oneself. Uh, looking into deeper levels of mind intention and um, 
with all of that, the result is commonly that, that um, spiritual teachers, uh, people who are quite spiritually developed, uh, commonly don't speak that much. I mean, great teachers uh, are usually quite, quite quiet, actually. Uh, so I hope that was helpful. There's always more to say, but I think I'll leave it at that. We went long as usual because I talk much, but I hope that was okay. Next time, we're going to a longer sutta, back to Gautama's dialogue with some Brahmins called Sundarika Bharadvaja Sutta. Sundarika Bharadvaja. That's the person, the Brahmin's name, I believe. A Brahmin questions the Buddha to see if the latter deserves to receive the cake resulting from his sacrifice, meaning some of the uh, prasad, I guess it was prasad, um, associated with his ritual. Uh, is the Buddha, is Gautama good enough to get it? Asks the, um, the Brahmin. So, in any case, I hope that was helpful. The matter of right speech is really important. And... Um, uh, it's also good for the the health of the mouth and the neck and the throat and uh, the lungs. So, uh, I hope that is helpful. Uh, please take good care of yourselves. Till next time, and good night. <laughs>